0: and welcome to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. This week on our panel, we have uh, Lee. Lee, do you want to to say hi? you want to introduce yourself?
1: Hi, hi everybody. Uh, This is Lee Whalen from the greatest uh, DevOps company nobody's ever heard of, uh, Fuzzy Logic Systems.
2: Nice. We also have Scott. Hey, Scott Nixon from Cloud Mechanics
0: out in Oregon. Nice. I'm going to be out in Oregon in a few weeks. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I'm filling in for Nell this week and we have a special guest, and that is Priyanka Sharma from GitLab. Priyanka, do you want to introduce yourself, tell everybody why you're so awesome and what you're doing here?
3: (laughs) Thank you, Chuck, yes. Hi everyone, I'm Priyanka, and I serve as Director of Technical Evangelism at GitLab. The role is very similar to Director of um, Developer Advocacy or Developer Relations and other companies. And I also sit on the board of the Cloud Native Computing Foundation.
0: That sounds fancy.
3: It's all a bunch of words.
0: <laughs> yeah. Now, Priyanka and I, we met at Velocity a couple of weeks ago and got this all lined up. And So, yeah, I was kind of excited to get on here. And, you know, then Nell said she was going to be out of town. And I was like, all right, well, you know, this is my chance. So, uh, yeah, let's get in and let's talk about this for a minute. Um, you you gave us a couple of options. We opted to talk about the tool chain crisis. And I'm wondering if you can just give us a two-minute introduction to the topic uh, let us know what you're thinking there, and yeah, and then we can kind of discuss it from there.
3: Yes, absolutely. So when referring to the tool chain crisis, I'm talking about the complicated choices that enterprises and smaller companies have to make when they are deciding how to set up their software develop, uh, development uh, security and operations lifecycle. Um, As some of you may remember, about two, three years ago is when Kubernetes really started taking off. Uh, Parallel to that taking off, uh, microservices started becoming a thing. We all all started developing software differently than we did, let's say, five years ago. Um, Cloud computing is, uh, I think, the reason that all this happened, because suddenly you can spin things up and down way faster than if you were running your own infrastructure. Once that started happening and then Kubernetes became big, we as an ecosystem got really excited about operationalizing this new way of developing software because the old ways didn't work anymore. So there's suddenly been an onslaught of so many open source projects, vendors, et cetera, that are out there solving very specific problems and there's for each problem there's probably 20 solutions out there and that brings forth the tool chain crisis where uh, microservices oriented companies every team is picking their own tool, tool chain and then compound that by the number of teams and suddenly an organization has 50 60 tools that they're using across the board um, what that leads to is there's no cohesion in a company and uh, information is not passed easily so The ultimate goal with which we all got excited with Kubernetes and cloud native and shift left is actually being held back because developers don't know what's happening in a different team's workflow. They don't know where something is. They don't have uh, the ability to jump in and contribute quickly, which is essential to shipping faster, which is what this whole thing is about. Uh, so that's kind of the tool chain crisis where we have too many options. Um, many people have chosen many options and suddenly we're in a state of chaos and that's costing us. When the one Most importantly, in terms of cycle time, just because people don't have the information they need. They don't know how to jump in and collaborate because they're not in the same tools. And then there's also just so many screens to look at that there's that huge human cost of context switching.
0: Yeah. I love the solution that people put forward. Well, everybody should just use my favorite cloud vendor.
3: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Fill in the blank, right?
0: Yeah. Uh, Lee and Scott, I'm curious, you know, have you seen this and, and how do you deal with it?
1: Oh yes. Um, we, we see this. Well, not, but I and my company, um, because we work with a, a variety of different companies in a variety of different contexts um, there, are, there is a ton of choices that, um, that startups today and even mature businesses can, can pick from. So you know, it might be uh, you know, like Jenkins or Jen- Jenkins X in, in one company, and then they're working through, um, you know, they're, they're trying to migrate off to Travis or maybe they're really happy with Jenkins. Or uh, you know, I've seen some companies uh, that are very happy with, with GitLab and, and GitLab CI, um, but, it, but it's just ever so slightly different. Um and yeah, there there is an embarrassment of options, and even stuff that on the uh, on the surface seems like it should be um fairly similar, you know, like uh, Amazon's EKS and uh, GCP's Kubernetes deploy. Uh, that it, it's a situation where the big print giveth and the small print taketh away. Where it's like, oh look, I should be able just to copy this. Oh no, there's you know it's death by a thousand cuts of, of differences here, 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 everywhere. And yeah it it can get pretty crazy
2: yeah i I find that oftentimes you you go into organizations and they just don't they're not using any kind of they're not using any kind of automation tools, whether it's ansible or puppet or chef, and they just don't know what to where to kind of start or what, what to choose and um, i think i don't know it just it's definitely all across you know i mean how many CICD platforms are there now and i mean it just it just kind of is you know, like it's, there's no good metrics ma- you know, matrices that you can go to and go, Oh, here, here's all the features I need. And then, you know, it's just like you can spend hours and hours and hours testing things out and trying things. And it just, that's why I, and I actually think, you know, it's not always the worst thing in the world that somebody goes, well, this is the, this is the thing I'm the most comfortable with. And so I'm going to use this, but uh,
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, the other thing, and so I'm building a software as a service right now for podcasters. And so I'm trying to make some of these decisions myself. And one of the things that I run into as well is not just, okay, you know, which of these is going to do the job for me now. Um, but I, I, you know, I don't know what level of adoption I'm going to get. Um, I don't know what kinds of features people are going to ask for. And so I may pick a vendor and then turn out that, Oh, okay. I've moved off in this other direction. I didn't anticipate. And all of a sudden this tool doesn't have what I need anymore. And so it's not just, Oh gee, you know, this is going to work for me. Great. But it's also—is this going to work for me a year down the line or three months down the line? You know, as things change.
3: Shameless plug—you should try GitLab, which is a single application. Um, I just point that out just because I think these challenges that you talk about are very real when you're starting a, pro- a startup, a nonprofit, or open source project. It's—you don't want to be wasting time on these questions, right? You probably want to build what you're key features are going to be what is going to be a differentiator and not have to waste time on these questions every day.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, especially, I mean, whether you're doing DevOps or whether you're doing development, because I, I kind of straddle the fence depending on what part of my particular solution I'm working on. Um, it, yeah, you know, I, I just want to make sure it'll scale, right? I don't want to worry about what tools I'm running, right? It's the same thing with you know, development, I don't want to care which library I'm using to upload images. I just want the images uploaded and resized the right way. And so, yeah, what you're saying is is really, you know, kind of the, the crux of what we're talking about here. You know, in the end, it doesn't matter which CI solution I'm using as long as it's getting the job done.
3: Yeah, I actually, the same thing you're saying, I've heard from so many diverse people doing different things that it, it's it's definitely a unifying message, I think. I was speaking with someone who is running a nonprofit that uh, does uh, machine learning from state-provided data sets on opio- the opioid crisis, and uh, what they figure out based on the data, is how much of, um, I guess, the antidote they should carry in emergency responder vehicles so that people, you know, people can get it when there is an, uh, an emergency and their lives be saved. They really don't want to care about the CI pipelines and the logging and the monitoring and which tool to use today, tomorrow, day after. They wanna save lives. And uh, and a completely different product on a very different spectrum is like cloud native projects. So I was talking to Fluenti um, who uh, is, is starting to use GitLab CI and same story where they're like, we want to ship the best log aggregator out there as opposed to figuring out our entire pipeline and this and that. So this is true regardless of what you are building. And that's been very inspiring for me to see because in the past I came from a point solution background. I was working on observability tooling. um, And I really, it's my favorite space, (laughs) but it's, interesting that when you go super deep in a space, you realize very specific unique problems. But then when you up level to look at the entire life cycle, you're like, wait a minute, we need to provide cohesion throughout the workflow and not just in one corner, tiny part of what's, uh, what the DevOps life cycle is like.
0: So, so how do we avert this crisis then? How do, how do we solve this?
3: I think that's a great question and a work in progress for <laughs> the industry at large. I have some thoughts, which I am happy to share. Um, This is; these are my opinions, so please, please know that. Um, Basically, what I've seen across organizations is that bringing order to the chaos is a must. I think the days of ad hoc trying random solutions and projects is are gone. I think there's general like the baseline awareness in the industry is such that we all agree that you don't just go willy-nilly trying out projects and tools and like adopting all of them. I do think there was a time two years ago when that was not the case, so we've already made progress. Um, What I have learned, and this is the philosophy that's inspired the GitLab single application a lot, is the point that ultimately what you need to do is help your developers shift left, and you have to meet them where they are comfortable. So If you want to ship fast and respond to the market, you want to help your developers know what happens beyond shipping a feature into operationalizing it, right? To do that, you can ask them to learn 200 different tools or you can bring the tools into their workflow that they're comfortable with and used to. So I think that's a really good um, sort of mantra to follow is like you're asking a developer to change how they work like by almost 50%, meet them halfway and be in the tool chain that they're used to. Then the second thing is, in my opinion, it's very important to think of what you want these people to achieve. You want the, you want all the developers in the company to know what is happening where so that when it's their turn to jump in and collaborate, which often happens with microservices-based architectures where there's lots of handoffs, they need to know when it's going to be handed off to them so they jump in and start working on their piece as opposed to being, you know, sitting around, oh, they'll let me know when it's my turn. Um, so there's the visibility piece, which is knowing what's happening. There's the collaboration piece where it needs to be easy to collaborate. And then finally, there's guardrails. It's really important to make people sec- feel secure that whatever work they're doing is really not going to bring the whole system down. <laughs> and there are safeguards in place. There is the you know, basics of observability in place that takes care of those, uh, abstracts the abstracts some of the uh, operational stuff away from every feature's uh, op- every features development. So I think those are three mantras to follow. Having a unified data model across all of the tooling or majority of the tooling is going to really help as you're gonna do that just because, you know, then there's a baseline of knowledge that will be passed on throughout the workflow. Um, How you do it, everybody does things differently. In the GitLab single application model, people can literally go from planning their features to, were source code management to CICD to post-production monitoring and security. And that's one way of doing it. But at the same time, the reality remains that there are certain aspects of a code base where you may need a very sharp tool. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think the key though is to integrate that really well into some hub-like or model which is like a single application like GitLab where there's minimal such Uh, external tools like integrating into it so that you fulfill the needs that you have but at the same time retain the sanity and the workflows workflow uh, seamlessness that I think really helps developers so those are that's my first my take based on what I've seen at GitLab working with over a hundred thousand organizations as well as my past life and observability so those are my 20 cents
2: (laughs) so I have a question, what are some examples of how you go about starting this data modeling process, you know, from your opinion?
3: Sure, so in the specific case of GitLab, because it's a single application, it's built on one data model. And so that's super easy, right? Um, However, when you are, let's say, looking at multiple tools, then if there's a way like you can pass on identifiers. So in the world of tracing, which was my past world in observability, we used to like trace ID or um, any kind of identifier, whatever you call it, like correlation ID, trace ID, whatever, as long as you could track that across the system, and this we're talking obviously now in the operation space. Uh, you were able to detect problems and you know fix them and get to the root cause. I think if we can get similar and sim- more and more similar in the workflow world, where you know context is propagated, the better you're going to do. And in the GitLab case, because it's a single application, it's the same data model. Wouldn't
2: I also I also had the question about you mentioned the idea about providing guardrails to to the developers. What what, what are some suggestions you have around that?
3: yes absolutely i think this is where in my opinion it is helpful to have like a tooling department or a team in a company somebody needs to be thinking very uh, deeply and carefully about what permissions to set up what, what kind of pii scrubbing to have what you know these are just examples uh, or how like you know how can you surface security issues to developers as they're d- developing code um, again, many ways to achieve the same results. Um, in our world of um, GitLab, what happens is that as people... What can happen, it's all optional, right, how you configure the system, but what can happen is that when you run a CICD pipeline, the merge request, which is similar to the pull request model in GitHub. so. That gets populated with information on, uh, you know, security scans. Whether it's like, um, you know, open, so whether it's looking at dependency scanning, whether it's looking at, you know, code quality tests, etc. And so, within the merge request pull request itself, the developer can see what's going on, and then they can go in and fix those problems that is really nice for the developer. They didn't set up that system, but they're benefiting from it, right? Um, And it's very, very clear to said developer that if there's a potential like big issue, it's it's no longer a thing of like, oh, I had no idea. Um, So that's one example. And then there's also like permissions. So for example, you want your um, company, I encourage, if people can't be open source, which I understand like you know can be a little intimidating or just impossible given what business you're in, at least in our source right and there are actually a lot of organizations and companies that have recently come talk to us about that. when you want to encourage inner sourcing most of the time you're coming from a completely closed system so there's people are scared because they're like, well, I was used to just having access to my project just to myself until I was ready to show it off to the world. And here we are talking about everybody can see what I'm doing. And that's stressful. So education around, and, you know, um, guidelines around like when does a project become open for people to see? What are some parts of the code that for, uh, you know, regulation reasons or whatever it might be can never, shown and like so it shouldn't be a situation that you're starting inner sourcing and by mistake this these two very very sensitive pieces of your software system are exposed like the developers need to have that kind of trust in the tooling that that's not going to happen um and i think that's where going back to the original point it's helpful to have a tooling team that looks at all these uh you know at, at all these business reasons on how they should open up the software system, and at the same time, not put people in trouble.
1: How um, that's that—that that sounds awesome. <laughs> that that is a, a great uh, a great goal to shoot for. Um, and and I can especially see how in in a smaller organization or or even a, a relatively new company, um, being able to come in with um, with a you know, a does it all solution um, makes all that. Sp- just crazy easy. How, how about in, in older, larger, or, or more established companies that that they may already have a a tooling department? Um, How, how would you go about overcoming some, you know, like not invented here syndrome where something like just for example, something we're both familiar with GitLab, I'm, I'm a big fan of GitLab. Fuzzy Logic uses it internally, uh, soup to nuts. We we recommend it, um, you know, when, when it's a good fit for, uh, for our clients. Um, but, but a lot of times, uh, they, you know, the, the GitLab ecosystem will overlap, uh, with, with a tool that was, uh, you know developed within within the company. And they're like, oh yeah, well well GitLab needs, you know, it it needs to replace this other tool uh that that we've you even though it, it may be superior to our, you know, inferior um tool that the you know the developer who originally wrote it left months ago. But this is but this is our garbage pile. And so we're gonna keep our garbage pile even though we have something new and actively developed that's gonna that's gonna do it. How how would you go about fighting some of that, you know, not invented here syndrome? Or have, okay. have you seen that, rather?
3: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think the, that is one of the biggest um, challenges any tool can face when it comes to adoption across companies and organizations. Um, so I think your question was, how do you combat the not invented here syndrome, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, I would say it depends. So, uh, of course, as, as with everything, it depends. Of course. Of course. Um, uh, but there are scenarios where I would venture that just because of some, you know, if some tool is very deeply integrated into a system and they've just built it and it's so awesome, there's no reason to, like, if it's not broken, don't fix it, I think is a true, true scenario. But it, it's really important to recognize when it is, it is broken. Um, and I think... These are the, not invented here is one of the most challenging things any any person trying to bring change in an organization faces just because it's, all, it's very emotional. It's an emotional response where like, you know, you have pride in what you built. Like, you know, it may be like, it may be ugly, but it's ours kind of a thing. Um, and so that's a factor to consider. And we're all, we're still at this point in time, human beings working on software systems. So you can't really um, fight against that. I do think what's possible is slow education. So uh, let's take the example of GitLab, right? Um, when it comes to source code management, adventure, most companies are not building their own. I, I don't think they are at all. Um, and that's an easy entry point, right? Because no one's really trying to build their own. It would be a total pain in the ass. Uh, sorry. <laughs> it would be a total pain.
1: It's
3: it's good. Keep going. Oh, gracious. Um, To build your own. And that's a great entry point. Now, the way the GitLab tool, our single application, is set up is that when you buy whatever piece of the software that you do, you get it all. It's just not, you're just not using it. And that actually has been a great strategy for us just because over time, most You know, tech professionals are curious people or most people are curious and they look around, check out what's different parts of what the different parts of the system are and slowly a fan following develops because there is real value in the offering as a whole Um, and So specifically GitLab as a company is a very strong land and expand model just because of this strategy. Um, And that does mean that we have to be patient. We won't, you know, have, have everybody using all the stages of the GitLab product in six months. But over the course of two to three years, it's very, very strong adoption across multiple stages. So that's kind of how we've seen it work where you're not actually... Uh, sort of butting heads with people to combat their point of view, because, you know, it's like telling someone, it's, it's almost like telling someone how to feel and that never works. Right. Um, And so, but when you just present the option and be like, cool, whatever you do, you then over time, we've seen it work really. Interesting. Very interesting. Thank
0: you. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, sorry. One one area that I want to jump in on with this a little bit is you you mentioned, you know, it, it depends a little bit on the outcomes you want. And I think this is where a lot of the problem of having a DevOps tools crisis comes from is that a lot of companies, they kind of ad hoc their way into their DevOps setup. It's, oh, now we need to manage these servers. Oh, now we're going to move to Kubernetes. Now we're going to try and do microservices. Oh, let's pull in some more cloud architecture and maybe do... Um, Lambda functions or something and then oh well there's this other part of this thing in the cloud so we're gonna we're gonna move our database over there and they never really have a clear direction as far as what the outcome is they want and so picking the right tool for an outcome that's not clear is is really tough so how do people start prioritizing the things that they need to know about and plan for so that they can actually make the decisions that you talked about earlier
3: that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for asking. Um, so I think last year, um, at Kubecon and sin, oh no sorry, in Seattle, I held a panel which had um, engineering leaders from Delta, CVS, T-Mobile, and Lyft talking about their DevOps journeys. and this was something that came up. And I think a really good point of view. Put forth by Matt Klein, who is actually the creator of the OnWeb Project in CNCF, well, and he works at Lyft, was that it is okay to go incrementally. It it in fact it's often the only way. I think in a year or two things would be a little different, just because there'll be so many case studies and examples of how to how to make this transformation. Um, but in terms of today, let's talk about today. Um, it's normal to bite off chunks and then go from there. Now, how do you choose tooling that resonates with, uh, that prepares you for the future while you're going incrementally is a, it's a challenge for most organizations. In the specific GitLab case, it's a little more straightforward just because you start with something and it'll, it'll scale with you and it'll change with the world around you just because we are an opinionated offering. So that's one point of view. But in when we generalize i would say that it's important to if you're biting off a small piece focus on that small piece so for example if you are um Actually, I'll give you an example. In terms of GitLab, the product, how we run our engineering, we are currently moving all of ourselves to Kubernetes. So we're in a, a very similar boat to a lot of our customers, which is which creates a level of empathy which, that I think is really useful. Um, but as GitLab is moving towards Kubernetes, we could have made the choice to go all in and gung-ho and build our continuous deployment system based on Kubernetes. But we actually have chosen not to do that. We have chosen to build our internal continuous deployment system off of VMs right now because we are going to push our legacy CI/CD system to the max while we are service by service moving to kubernetes when that piece is done is when we will evaluate exactly how to modernize our own CI/CD and so we didn't lock stock and barrel put all our bo- uh, all our eggs in one basket for multiple reasons one is that in the Uh, theoretical abstract point of view yeah totally let's go all in is a great idea but when it comes to reality you have to change people's behaviors and uh, workflow practices and that takes a lot longer than just turning the switch on in some technology so I think if you are scoping if you are going you know step by step truly go step by step and don't adopt everything that is going to come at once. And if you make the changes slowly, it's easier to revert back to. This is also like actually a GitLab philosophy of the minimum viable change, which is true for everything from like documents you write to um, videos, to to product features, to how we run our own infrastructure, which is go bit by bit and don't disturb the rest while you're going bit by bit. And I think that leads to more thoughtful um, tooling decisions. And ultimately, even if people decide to change the direction they're going in, they don't have to sort of rework everything. It's, you know, you made lots of small decisions. So reverting at each decision point is easier.
1: That's a lot to absorb. <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah. <laughs> I know there's just so much we can all do, but you know, human progress is slow. Like the machines are fast. <laughs> it's, right. we right. sense that it's like a little bit the problem, but we, I think we're working hard and doing our best, all of us.
0: Yeah, I can relate to that. I I have to screw it up about a dozen times before
2: you. (laughs)
3: Same here.
2: Well, I mean, I think I think it's like there's so much to it. It's like you have to do. I don't know. Sometimes you have to go down that road to learn the lesson that you need to learn the lesson to kind of get yourself on the right track. I mean, like we all want to think that like we can pick the right. make the right choice the first time. And we try to like research things extensively and we try to like plan for all eventualities, but like sometimes it's just, you know, we have no, you know, you can't, you can't plan for it. You just have to do it. Right. Yeah.
3: I hundred percent agree. And that's why I lean honestly towards on like two things. One is the MVC model, right? The minimum viable change. So make small changes so you can revert back easier. And the third is, always go for simplicity i think simple is better in everything um if it sounds really complex and fancy it probably is and it's going to just cause a lot of um, frustration in teams so i think it's really important to not over engineer things you know i have friends who um are doing consulting these days and they were telling me that some of them are like data people and they have been called in to companies to help out. Where people are like, "Yeah, we have the state of the art system, and we need you to build this like data lake and data warehouse and this and that." And the guys, my friend, my friend's like, "Well, I can build that for you, no problem." But you have ten transactions a month. You will need this when you have. 10 million transactions a month. So why are we over engineering this problem again? So that I think we're all prone to it as technologists. It's exciting to build something shiny and awesome and like supercharged, but it's important to think about like, what, what do you need? What do you, what is the simplest thing you need? What is the minimum thing you need? And I think that is just a huge challenge for us just because our nature is innovation and building and super cool stuff.
2: Yeah. What is it, what is it about it that drives that premature optimization? You know, is it just, you know, I don't know. It's just like, and maybe it's a priorities thing, really. It's like, you're not sure what you should be working on. So you're like like planning for this massive event that's not come, that hasn't come yet. So, and I've been there.
3: (laughs) Same here. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's just that, you know, Sometimes, and this may be because shift left hasn't fully happened in the ecosystem yet, infra teams forget why they're there. They're there in service of a business, and that business may not be building the fanciest infrastructure setup out there. It may actually be something more basic than that, or something completely different than what the industry wide. Uh, patterns are that we hear of in all the infrastructure conferences and so i think the disconnect between the business and the infra can be a challenge that leads to this and then like you know in the startup world you often see people then pivot from like i don't know a retail startup to uh, a monitoring solution or something and i'm like okay so they have a really solid infra team and that product was better than what started out as the business model so those funny things happen i think
1: I think the the over engineering side can also stem from a desire to we just want to solve this problem once and then never have to look at it again you know if you in in the physical world if you you know you you can build a shed and if you build it with you know a, a poured concrete foundation and, and iron rebar that thing's going to stand there you know in a hurricane you're going to have that shed until you die. Whereas in the, in the infrastructure, and it's not, you know, that much more effort to, you know, go into building this bomb-proof shed, um, and then you get the shed problem, solved the rest of your days. Where I, I, I think a lot of startups are like, you know, hey, we have an infrastructure problem here. What is the, what is the latest hotness? Oh, it's Kubernetes with all the fixings. And as you said, it, it might not be a good fit. In fact, it might even be an anti-pattern because of, you know, business reasons A through F. But, you know, the, the big print says that, oh, yeah, we'll be able to do X, Y, and Z. But then the small print's like, yeah, but we're going to take away A, B, and C, so on and so forth.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, and on, on that, just to, uh, to give an example, I was talking to my father-in-law the other day, um, and I was telling him, oh, yeah, you know, I want to. I want to pour a concrete pad on the side of my house so that I can park all this stuff there. And then I want to put a shed in so that we can move all of the yard tools out to the shed. That's what made me think of it, you know, with your example. And he says, well, why don't you just put gravel down on the side of your driveway behind the gate and then put a tarp over the lawn tools, right? It gets it out of your garage and it's a lot less work. And sometimes, depending on where your your company's at, that's the kind of DevOps you need for right now. You just need to put some gravel down, figuratively. Put a tarp over it. Nothing's going to get ruined, and then you can move on to the other things that are more important. Come back to it later. Right, right. The <laughs> minimum viable
1: DevOps.
3: Yes, 100% agree. <laughs> but it's so hard in practice because I mean, I think we have to like literally like put post its on our computer to remind ourselves of this. You know, it, it, I, I tend to get like really into the weeds sometimes and it's just, it is exciting and it's fun, but we got to keep, keep the, keep the eye on the prize. Right. Right. (laughs)
0: Yeah. The other thing is, is I get tied up around the, the feeling of boom nailed it. Right. And so it's, it's, you know, yeah. So I want to go build the shed because I nailed it. You know, I, I got it done. Look what I did. It's beautiful. And yeah, the reality is, is that if I want to get as much done as possible and I want to do what serves my needs, yeah. It, it may just be overkill.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause you know, it's, you, I think the the conversation you can have with yourself is, Hey, I'm, I'm delaying actually properly dealing with this problem by putting down the gravel and putting a tarp over stuff. Right. And it's kind of, you know, my inclination would be like, well, would you really want to put a tarp over stuff or would you still want to build the shed, but you just have the gravel driveway or something. (laughs) I don't know. It's like you get into this bargaining thing about like what, you know, if that's really a good option or not. So, but no, it's a, it's, it's a really fun example. So. Analysis paralysis. Yeah. Yeah. One, one other
0: thing I want to throw in here is that, Um, usually when I'm picking these, uh, systems, I'm picking them based on three things. And one is, is how well does it communicate to the people what it needs to communicate? One is the features. And I think we talked a bit about that. And, um, the last one is how does it fit into my process? And a lot of times I find that as I talk to people, they're, they're laser focused on one of those and they miss the other two. And so, you know, I'm wondering if there's a process that we could put around this or a start to a conversation that people can have in their company that they're working at so that they make sure that they cover these things. And, and I I don't know what that looks like, but, but I kind of like the actionable take of, Hey, put these things on your list and make sure you get them covered.
3: So, I, I can speak to that. Uh, at the panel that I hosted at KubeCon Seattle last year, um, the lady from Delta Airlines, her name's Jasmine Jacobs, she runs the tooling team over at Delta. And she had this amazing rubric to use when evaluating new tooling. And she calls it A E I O U. And there's a full list of what each, um, each letter stands for. I'm going to do my best to remember all of them. Um, I know that E was for enterprise ready. I was integrated, how integrated, in, integratable it is into their current uh, solution. And then there was a, you was like useful, but useful came at the end. And that was what really stuck, stuck to me because most people will see which is the coolest feature set that can solve my problem. But for her, it was like, that's a baseline I look at at the end. A tool needs to, uh, meet all these other uh, criteria first. I'm actually going to pull up that list because I'm not remembering each one, uh, and I'll share with you all. If you keep continuing talking, I'll, I'll, I'll put it right there. One sec.
1: It, it almost sounds similar to um, many, many, many moons ago when containers and, and Kubernetes were just starting to heat up. There was a, um, it, it was just a, a camera picture of a whiteboard around the production cliff where it's, you know, oh, the developer has Docker on their laptop, and then they think it's good. But what they don't see is the production cliff in order to get it into production, where it also needs observability, it needs alerting, it needs um, you know, the, the, a real deploy system. It, it was probably a dozen different things. It's, ah huh, I need to save that.
2: Security, networking, layer 7 proxy, all of this.
1: <laughs> exactly, yeah.
0: Now I'm getting scared. I mean, you're just listing off all these things and it's like, whoa. <laughs> Certificates. Yeah. But, but that, I mean, that's the beauty, right, of having a process figured out for a lot of this stuff. Because then it's just, you just work through the, the, the system and at the end you've covered most of the things that you need to have thought about. And so I like the mnemonic, the AEIOU, but ultimately, yeah, write out what you need to think through on all this stuff and then work through it.
3: Yeah. And it's, um, so I found the link, which is what I shared. And so basically in that a is applicability, like is this applicable to our system? Like given whatever infrastructure we're running on, because some shiny tool may just, for example, something that only works for OpenShift and doesn't work for Kubernetes. It may be the coolest thing out there, but what are you going to do? Right. And then, um, with ease, enterprise ready, as I spoke, which is self-explanatory and integration means, is it, can you actually integrate it well into your existing tool chain? And I think this is where that whole conversation about having a sane hub-based model for your tooling comes in, where like something may be super cool, but if it doesn't connect to anything else, you're gonna have that much overhead with finding out the information in that tool, acting on it, et cetera then overhead is exactly like the actually is the overhead of training and all the integration overhead that comes with it. And then you finally is usefulness. I really like this mnemonic because it captures everything from my perspective.
0: Yeah. It's definitely easy to remember.
2: Yeah. So like Lee just shared like his, his little image on the learning cliff. And it, it goes from containers at the bottom to scheduling, replication, repeatable deployments, scaling up, <laughs> down, application updates, high availability, security, load balancing. And there's probably more that can be on that list. Thanks for sharing that Lee. Just <laughs> before
1: the screening boards come for me, this is not my image. This is something I saw the months, even probably even years ago as a, uh, as a Twitter post and just in searching for that from the, the VMware blog, that's, that's where yeah, yeah. the image comes from.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll be, be yeah. in the show notes, so I mean easily accessible.
0: Well, the, the thing that's really sad about it is you look at that and then you, you add in uh, more of the dev part of DevOps. And so each of those you can do the scheduling plus back-end technology, scheduling plus front-end technology, scheduling plus mobile technology, and you just do that all the way up the stack. And it just, you know, it, it just grows exponentially from there with everything that you add in.
3: Yeah, the complexity only grows, it doesn't get less. And I think part of it is almost intentional from a native foundation point of view because they do not want to be like OpenStack where it was very opinionated. And I think that has that has had some really good things because it has spurred innovation. But we're also at that peak, peak, <laughs> peak uh, chaos moment where the tool chain crisis type things happen because there's too many options. And uh, there needs to be some way for us to sift through the madness and have some best practices. I think as an industry, we're getting better. But the more people that go cloud native, the more new complexities will emerge. And someone will have to solve the problem and then teach the rest of the world.
1: <laughs> Definitely. That, that is a, uh, a much more polite way of, <laughs> of something I, I like to say often is when you build an idiot-proof system, nature will provide a better idiot. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. And many, many times, I end up being that better idiot. <laughs>
3: hey, we're all we're all at some point an idiot.
2: Too simple to fail. Challenge accepted. Right. <laughs>
3: I'm,
2: I'm glad you brought up the, the Cloud Native Foundation. And so I guess I'm trying to, can you kind of, you know, dig into that a little more? I'm definitely curious, you know, the projects that end up on, you know, referenced on their site, are these projects that they have some ownership in or do they try to, you know i guess i'm trying to just figure out how they those kind of come about
3: yes absolutely so uh, i've been involved with the cncf since i guess two three years ago now so and when i joined i got involved because the third project to join the foundation open tracing i was a part of the early folks on it so i've seen things evolve uh, they uh, yes the cloud native computing foundation officially owns the ip of all the projects that are in it um, IP, yeah, includes like, you know, logos and all of that stuff. So, yes, that's the case. The way they get projects in, so the foundation was started with Kubernetes as the sort of uh, flagship project. It was built to house Kubernetes, and then the uh, execs or leaders in the foundation, wise, in my opinion, wisely decided that if you are going to have a project to make it real and make it applicable, especially when it's such a paradigm shift, needs to, there needs to be a tooling um, ecosystem around it so that people can really change the way they develop software. And so that's how tools beyond, uh, or projects beyond Kubernetes started getting accepted. Uh, the second project was Prometheus which has become a household name in my opinion on metrics uh, and then it went from there. So today if a project wants to get accepted they have to um, and I'm going to tell like the fuzzy details because specific uh, guidelines will be different because I don't remember them all. Um, but they need to basically get sponsored by someone on the TOC which is the Technical Oversight Committee and then come up for a vote in the Technical Oversight Committee about whether or not they get to join and uh, the criteria is extremely technical Uh, it needs to be innovative useful and enabling cloud native software development uh, which is great Um, and they have multiple tiers so sandbox environment is the first type where the onus is sort of lower in terms of how much community you have you just need to be an interesting technology then you can you sort of graduate to the next level, which is incubation. And at that point, the expectations are bigger in terms of governance, community, who else contributing. And then finally, there's graduation. And there's only, I think, five projects that have graduated out of a total 36 plus, um, where the community guidelines are really like a lot more. You need lots of organizations participating, a really inclusive charter and governance model. Um, et cetera. and adoption is also a big factor. So uh, there, there are tiers at which there are different projects. Uh, there's been talk of at some point having a clearing house also in the future. So right now it's been about accepting projects and seeing who gra- like moves up the chain. Uh, but in the future, it's possible that there'll be some culling uh, based on how the projects are performing From um, a technology adoption and uh, governance perspective. So that's kind of the system right now. Multiple now, in terms of funding, even though the CNCF would own the projects, that doesn't mean that they're the people funding it alone. Tons of companies contribute developer hours and time to each project, uh, depending on where it fits in their strategic goals. And so the ecosystem around it is pretty robust.
2: Okay. Yeah, the, I, I mean, the, um, it's kind of funny because like I was noticing even in there, I didn't know what Envoy was. And so I looked that up and it's a layer seven proxy. And right. I was just like, and it was like, why Envoy instead of something like Nginx or, um, oh gosh, what's the other one? That t- I can't, can't think Linker of it.
3: Linkerd. Right yeah. yeah. So, Linkerd is actually um, a part of CNCF as well. So, the CNCF is clear that they will accept competing technologies, which I think is really awesome. And this goes back to them not, not wanting to be opinionated, but rather just collecting the right tech, you know? Um, and so, people can make their own decision on whatever works for them. Um, so, yeah, NGINX is not there because I guess NGINX didn't apply. <laughs> it can be as simple as that, actually.
1: Well, and NGINX also just got recently picked up by F5, I think. Right, right. That, does, that does the CNCF, are they providing funding for the, the further development of these, or are they just a, an IP clearinghouse?
3: Um, they do not, as of now, fund the development, no. They are, I would call. I would say IP clearinghouse, but they also help the projects in terms of guidance. Uh, so there's a few various, actually, there's a bunch of triangles. One is with... Organizing something like KubeCon every year in multiple countries and continents, uh, as well as other events, they provide a way for these projects to connect with the end user community to and also with the contributor community so that they can get more um, adoption and traction. Um, and they have events teams that run the whole thing. They also... Uh, provide, uh, like, have partnerships with, like, the cloud providers, companies like GitLab. So, for instance, all all CNCF projects will get, um, how much is it, 250,000 minutes free per month from GitLab CI pipelines. And so they have deals like that with different uh, companies, and the uh, project owners can choose whatever they want to do tooling-wise. And then there's also, like, you know, mentorship and guidance available on how to run the project well and all of that stuff interesting all right
2: yeah it's very cool stuff i mean it's it big corporate partnership has definitely become a huge part of the way open source gets built and um you know kind of nourished so to speak so it's uh it it it's very official and and you know it's like it's got like a nice website and everything. It's, uh, it's very clear that there was some a lot of effort put into organizing this organization. And I mean, it's definitely has its roots in Google, right? But it's definitely now very collaborative, correct?
3: Agreed, 100% agreed. But yeah, it started off with Google wanting a home for Kubernetes and today everyone participates. We're not Google, we're GitLab and I spend a lot of time in open source and in cloud native and it's super awesome inclusive community.
0: One thing that that I kind of want to touch on with this is that um, you mentioned that GitLab right now you're you're moving to Kubernetes,
3: mm-hmm.
0: um, and I've I've been talking to a lot of other companies. It seemed like uh, Kubernetes got really hot of probably a year or two ago, uh-huh. and so a lot of kind of the the fast movers and shakers or people who were starting new projects kind of jumped on and and picked things up as far as Kubernetes went but now more of the mainstream is moving that way. So we're kind of at this transition point, I feel like, where you've got sort of a traditional DevOps that is, okay, we're going to spin up a server, spin up a VPS or whatever, and then we're going to point something like Chef or Puppet or Ansible or something at it and kind of terraform it to the point where it, you know, it does what we want. And now it's, we're going to build a container and we're going to spin it out that way. How How is the cloud-native... Um, foundation, how are they working to facilitate that transition?
3: Great question. Uh, the cloud-native computing foundation, I don't speak for everyone, <laughs> right. but as a board member, I can uh, address this question from my perspective. Uh, I see the foundation making a lot of effort to educate the end users about the cloud-native technologies, containerization, etc. Frankly, I have noticed across the over the years these conferences that they put up, such as KubeCon, have become training grounds for companies. So, if you look at a KubeCon or an OzCon, which is not put up by CNCF but is a similar conference, there are tutorial days before the actual conference starts, and companies are sending their developers and mass to these. Uh, sessions where they can just sit for the whole day and go through a workshop and learn. So it's almost like learning and de- development is being augmented by these conferences, which uh, foundations like CoupCon, uh, CNCF run. And that's been a really good way for developers to learn, not only in the classroom setting, but also from in the hallway track from each other, from different companies. Um, and I think the success of KubeCon which has been a very big event for our industry in the last few years, has, has sped up or speeded up, uh, sped up, sped up, sped up, has sped up the uh, adoption of container tech and uh, Kubernetes across the ecosystem. I think another factor is just by providing such a stable home and neutral ground for Kubernetes and a lot of these other projects, they have created a trust in these projects by uh, from enterprises that they feel comfortable moving to these um, options. So I think the CNCF plays a critical role in this change in how we develop software.
0: And kind of leaning into the other conversation again, you know, we've got this tools crisis, right, that we're talking about with DevOps. Mm-hmm. And I can see this transition point playing into that as well, right? Okay, well, currently we do things this way and we're gonna move more toward cloud native, so how do we pick tools for that?
3: Mm-hmm. That's yep. exactly what happened. Sorry.
0: So, so yeah. So, so how, where do you see things going from here?
3: I think as an industry, we are moving towards a little bit more consolidation and cohesion. Up until a year ago, uh, when, in fact, I joined GitLab a year ago and bef- I joined when I did because up until then, I didn't believe the single application message. I was really skeptical coming from a um, sharp, Pointed solution that one tool can rule them all, kind of thing. And I still, read, and I've lear- come to learn at GitLab that that is not actually what we're saying. But um, what I have come to understand is the need for uh, a unified workflow. And that at first was just GitLab saying, talking about it. And I didn't believe it. But then when I heard the story of how GitLab became a single application, we started as version control and then. Uh, A contributor contributed GitLab Runners to build GitLab CI, and his point of view was like, you got to just work with them together. And when they tried it, they just realized that the 1 plus 1 was equaling 11, not 2. And... That message, if you look in the recent past, we're hearing it from Azure DevOps. We're hearing it from GitHub Actions. We're hearing it from multiple sources now. So I think in the industry, there's an awakening that you need to standardize on some things. Um, And I think we're doing it in a really good way, though, this time, because I don't hear parallelly that that means we're going to shut out new tech, new innovation, new technologies. It's more that uh, new tech develops, and then over time, starts getting sort of brought into whatever the cohesive workflow model is. And so I'm seeing it happen. The thought leadership is there. The product direction is coming, not just from GitLab, but other players as well. And I think in the next couple of years, it'll get more and more like that. Of course, we will discover new problems. And for that, there will always be the exciting new tech project that solves it. Uh, But there will be just as much thought put into how to now integrate this into the rest of the workflow. As much as it as much as thought is put into coming up with the solution in the first place.
1: Interesting. That that seems um, fairly similar to a. Uh, I, I hesitate to call it a movement, but I guess more of a, a design pattern for um, for web services um, that that I've heard of before. It's called the the, the Fediverse, where it's you know it, it's a bunch of competing technologies, um, but they, they are all interoperable. You know they they agree on. Uh, you know, hey, we're, we're going to share activities in, in this particular format, so whether or not your client does, you know, if your client's made by, by this project, it'll display it just fine. If it's displayed by this other project, it'll also, you know, parse just fine, so on and so forth. And it, it's interesting to hear some, you know, there, there's huge, huge differences too, um, but there's, there, there's more than a little bit of similarity between that and, and what you were describing, um, of you know, hey, everybody is. We basically we have to realize we're we're on the same team, and we don't necessarily need to bring in uh, you know new stuff that is just wildly different, just for the sake of being wildly different.
3: Yes, I, I really like what you said. A design pattern of the fediver, federacy or fediverse. Fediverse. Yes, that is super cool, uh, and I think that. Um, that is the direction we we are all going in and it's, I think it's for the better because uh, like, you know, the crazy heyday is a little, it was crazy. <laughs> yeah. oh. And now there's a little bit of cohesion coming in, which good news for us all, I think.
0: All right. Anything else we want to shoot at before we go to picks?
1: Yeah. Um, what, uh, something that, that I saw in your, uh, your initial, um, I don't know if this was a pitch email forwarded by Chuck, um, but a, a, a topic up for discussion is you know, how, how the true promise of DevOps can only be accomplished by putting control in the hands of developers, um, which I think is very provocative, uh, but then that, that's tempered by, and how we are so not there right now. <laughs>
3: yes. Yes. Um. So let me explain. (laughs) So I think that, and this is my opinion, I think that for any technology or movement to truly get ingrained, it needs to go in the hands of the developers. Uh, A great example of that is cloud computing. AWS really kicked us off on this trend, right? And how did it get there? It was open to everybody to use. So operations people could get on the board right away. But the thing that really made this special was how every developer could just go spin up AWS and start using it for whatever project or whatever they were doing. And look at cloud computing today. It's, it's, uh, it's ubiquitous. It's definitely here to stay. And I think that was because they, it transcended operations to do developers really, really well. Um, I think other technologies have um, been come close but not really big be- stayed because they never really, they were just too complex to get into the hands of developers. They were not designed for that as well. Um, I don't want to take names, but I'm sure you guys can guess. Um, and, <laughs> and that is, I think, where Kubernetes stands today. We have this talk about DevOps, this promise of DevOps, but if you think about it, We've gone from dev teams and ops teams to dev teams and dev ops teams. There's still a difference, you know, and not every developer has easily accessed. It's not everybody is able, able to just go spin up a Kubernetes cluster and do whatever they feel like doing. And there's lots of reasons, right? People fear costs, etc. cetera. But that was true for cloud computing too. That is still true for that too, right? That's why people end up with huge AWS skills sometimes. In my opinion, it's a risk worth taking because if Kubernetes is truly in the hands of developers, then It just becomes second nature to them, and then, if because it's so valuable, it's gonna stick around. And um, I think the promise of DevOps has not been um, harnessed or achieved because this piece is still frictionful. I think we're asking developers to change their job and add almost fifty percent to it by going from Dev to DevOps, and we have to meet them in their workflow to make this easy, and uh, that's how we will really harness all the positives of like really fast cycle times, et cetera, et cetera, until people are being expected to just like jump through a billion hoops to understand, to go to, you know, have access to Kubernetes clusters, to uh, understand the monitoring, et cetera. It's just, it may not stick.
1: Indeed. I, I think another big roadblock to that is uh, what, what I see as the, the chronic um, compensation problem in technology. Uh, as evidenced across you know, developer uh, you know, people who are employed as developers and people who are employed as um, operations folks or SREs. Uh, I, I hear companies complain all the time. Oh, I can't possibly find you know good developer talent or or good operations talent. And you know, I'll, I'll just sort of up and be like, oh hey, tell tell me a little more. What are you looking for? Oh, okay. You here's this gigantic laundry list. Oh, how much do you pay? Oh, well, have you considered? Maybe doubling that, just so you can get people in the door. And the answer is just, oh my goodness, we couldn't possibly, like, well, mm-hmm. I think I see part of the problem. <laughs> if you're going to ask people to do more with less, yes. um, you might need to bump the compensation just a little bit.
3: But I agree that, with
1: that. I there, that. That's half of the, the conversation that very few uh, C-levels or uh, HR professionals want, want to have
2: yeah I mean one of the the conversations i i I have a lot with um, customers is around this idea that we 've moved um, you know it started with moving infrastructure into you know vmware and you know putting virtual virtualizing all our all our servers and now it's, you know, everything's in the cloud and we're, now we're containerizing things. And what's happened is is that we, now instead of a lot of, you know, physical infrastructure, we have a lot of, we need a lot of software infrastructure. And that just is getting larger and larger and larger. it It's actually made, the cloud has actually not made things simpler, but it, it it's made it way more complex. And so now you need people that are kind of, you know, really, you have different skills, you have different, um, ways that you're thinking about, um, you know, I, I, I can remember just, it was maybe what, 12 years ago. I can remember buying a, like a, a server and I would install both the application and the SQL server on, on the same, same box. Cause it just was really heavily underutilized. And this was something that, um, you know, the only redundancy really on this thing was, was like that it had like a raid configuration and there was no like, you know, there was no, you know, like, like automated backups on the multi AZs. There was no like multiple front end web apps. There was no, you know, like automated failover of SQL server and stuff like that. And now you can kind of buy those things very inexpensively. I mean, you literally can have a, you know, like, very small like website that's got all of those things I just discussed and it costs you like a hundred dollars a month, you know, on some like Amazon or, um, you know, all the, any of the big cloud providers. Right. And so I just, I think that's one of the things that's really interesting, but like it's something that maybe on the business side, it's nowhere near as obvious that that is such a big difference. That's just changed in a couple of years. Well, when I
3: hundred percent agree, Oh, oh sorry, oh, What's that- Go ahead, please continue. Oh, I was going to say that I 100% agree that the cloud has not made things simpler. It's definitely made things very different and created um, value for a new skill set. And that skill set, in my opinion, is like at least two people's worth of jobs in the old world. So naturally, it's a a not common skill set. And like, you know, the more we all need to get up to speed that's why like the whole developers need to shift left thing is there but yes people need to compensate for for that appropriately to your point lee um it, that's where i think uh, being open to maybe a remote workforce is, or some kind of you know accepting people from different uh, geographical regions is important gitlab being all remote this is something we've benefited from where you know talent doesn't have a zip code people can be anywhere but you know uh, purchasing power parity is different in different regions and people can uh, companies and people can both benefit from when you know you open up your doors or you know computers <laughs> to people in different locations like i were i work at a completely remote company today i'm in santa barbara tomorrow i'm going to be in san francisco it doesn't matter i have colleagues in uh, warsaw and in South Africa, in New York, San Francisco, it doesn't matter. And I think that's really important because there's just not that enough people who have this skill set right now.
1: Absolutely. And, yes, re- remote working, I think, is, a, is practically a necessity um, for companies today. And I, I get very dismayed when, when I see these job posts. And it's like, yes, not only do we have this, you know, Unusually low compensation range, but you have to be on our twenty square mile chunk of rock. If you aren't within our twenty square mile chunk of rock, we can't we can't help you. Sorry, have a nice day. And those um, those job descriptions get reposted month after month after month, and you just you have to wonder what what is the opportunity cost that they're that they're losing out on.
3: Hundred percent agree. It's almost like you're you're asking for failure at that point. <laughs>
0: Well, the other thing is, is that I've talked to more and more people that live in more and more remote locations and you're ruling those people out. And the reality is, is their cost of living is probably lower. Their salary requirements are probably lower. So if that's a concern for you, you're missing the boat on that. And then a lot of these people are highly motivated and highly skilled and they have the benefit of not having people walk by their desk every day and ask them dumb questions. I mean, no offense to any of the coworkers I've ever had. But that was always a problem. They'd come by and, hey, I've got a quick question. And by then you've broken my train of thought and I've got to spend another half hour getting back into it. And so I got, I always got my way more done the days that I would essentially call in and say, I'm working from home today. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it's a real thing. It's not just the the difference in the talent pool or anything else. It's, you know, what people can get done and uh, the, the level of work that you can accomplish by having diverse people from different backgrounds working on stuff.
3: I 100% agree. I, um, as I said, GitLab is all remote and I work from home most days. And I've been road tripping this past 10 days. And so I go into co-working spaces because I need good Wi-Fi. And I'm remembering now just how frictionful it is to not work remotely at home. Because So there's the excitement of, oh, I'm going to, you know, dress up and go to work kind of thing. But once I'm here, it takes longer to get started. It And then like, you know, the shoulder tapping and like, you know, someone next to me is playing ping pong. It's like, of course, that's distracting me. And none of those things happen at home. And I get so much more done in like six, seven hours of work at home than eight plus hours in an office. It's mind blowing. I 100% agree that the productivity boost of working from home is huge. I, yeah, I'm seeing it now.
0: Yeah, well, and, The other thing is, is I work from home and I have five kids and I get more done at home. So, you know, it's it's reality, you know, I can shut the door. I mean, they're out for the summer, but you know, I I still get more done just because I can control my environment.
3: hundred percent agree. I mean, my dog is always trying to sit in my lap at home. Uh,
0: (laughs) Dogs and three-year-olds, my goodness.
3: They had zero sense of okay. She's busy. They're like, well, you're here, and your job is to be a cuddle puddle. So
0: you love me, right?
3: <laughs> right. <laughs> it's so funny. But still, I get more done at home than um, in an office. Look, especially this open office concept is very, very.
0: <laughs> I, I heard my evil laugh and someone else's evil laugh. So,
1: oh yeah, same here. I've. Oh, the, the the PTSD from open offices especially when it's you know the the operations team sitting next to the developer team which isn't in a, in and of itself bad but when you've got you know the the sales pit right across the way and everybody wants to share you know the 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 blue joke they heard at the bar you know the the past weekend or they get into a really really intense sales call or something it's just like how did we get here what
0: <laughs> yeah or or you have the um groundhog prairie dog cube farm right where it's hey joe and then joe stands up you know his head pops up and then you know because everybody's turning their heads and what what's going on and yeah
3: i used to think it was just me and i used to feel very like like man i really don't know how to work i guess because i keep getting distracted sitting at this open floor plan but after i've gone remote a i'm very productive is what i learned and b everybody was struggling with this whole open floor plan problem. Yeah. So I feel like a lot better.
0: <laughs> my hack for that, honestly, was to get a bigger screen, right? So it, it blocked more of my field of view and noise canceling headphones.
1: Yeah. I, I am not joking. My, my hack for that was to start my I, own company. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I got laid off when I, and that's when I started my own company. And then it was like, wow. <laughs> you know, yeah. I worked six hours and I got, twice as much done as I'd get done at eight hours in the office, so.
3: So true, so
0: true. Anyway, um, well, we've kind of gone a little bit afield from some of the topics we (laughs) were on, but I I think there are things that people deal with, so I was happy to let it go on, but uh, we're kind of getting toward the end of our scheduled time, and I want to take some time for picks, so I'm going to go ahead and let our panelists go first, and uh, just to give you an idea on picks, because I don't know I, I got word yesterday that our prep documents disappeared in our uh, website migration. So uh, picks are things that you feel like the world should know about. So it could be TV shows. It could be tech tools. It could be books. It could be music. it could I mean, whatever, right? Whatever is making your life better. You know, it's, it's the frosting on the cake of life, I guess. Oh, um, so so I love it. So Lee, why don't you go ahead and uh, share some picks real quick?
1: Sure uh first first pick for me is uh is the load shares project and i just popped a a link in the chat here um some of the uh the, the part- people who've been working in technology for a fair amount of time might recognize uh the handle esr or the name uh eric s raymond uh he he's been working in um you know in critical infrastructure since 1992 and he he has this project on okay well there's there's single points of failure for for lots of, of critical infrastructure. You're not necessarily you know like CNCF or nginx. I'm talking low level stuff like the GNUPG project or OpenSSL or Emacs or uh, NTPsec and all all sorts of stuff that you know it's it's one or two people uh, working in their own time, but they've been doing it for years and years and years. They tend to be getting on in years, and their, their expenses are mounting, but no, nobody's paying the guy to develop GNUPG. Um, and his, the Loadshares project wants to bring um, some attention to those people, uh, as well as give, um, uh, give you know, people of means uh, some way to, to fund their work, not unlike Patreon or Subscribestar or, or things of that nature. It, it's specific to, um, he calls them uh, load-bearing internet persons. Um, and he's, he's got some great examples in the, uh, in the, in the catb.org, uh, link that I've shared. And I think it's a wonderful idea, especially seeing, um, you know, how much, uh, you know, critical internet infrastructure, uh, we're, you know, we're talking down to, um, the level of handling, uh, you know, bu- buffer bloat on, on whatever switch you, you may be running in the last 10 years, um, levels of critical. Uh, so I, I would like to bring folks attention to that. My my second p- pick um, is, is a wonderful missive um, called uh, Boring Technology. And their their webpage is boringtechnology.club. And wouldn't you know it, in my um, gigantic uh, tab sprawl in, in Firefox here, um, I think that you know, while, while we're talking about the, the bleeding edge and – um, all the, the fun things that we can do with it, uh, it's, it's good to refocus on, you know, what, what we're really here for, which is we, we, we're trying to drive the, the engine of business. And sometimes the, the best way to, to drive business is not to pick the bleeding edge, it's to pick, or at least consider seriously, the boring technology, the stuff that works, the stuff that is, uh, is really well understood, all its failure modes are, um, are deeply documented and, and things of that nature. So that might be interesting for our audience to, uh, to check out as well.
0: Nice. I'm going to throw in on the load shares, uh, pick real quick. I hadn't heard of this one, but, uh, I wound up having conversations with people from, uh, code fund.io and, uh, the sustain uh, OSS sustain OSS organization, as well as, um, uh, open collective. And, you know, these are, these are all groups that are trying to solve some of these, uh, sustainability issues in different ways. And we put together a show called Sustain Our Software. Um, as we record this, it's not been launched yet, but it will probably launch right around the same time as this as this podcast launches. So if you're getting this one, you may also want to go check that one out if you're interested in something like Load sharers. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push that their direction and see if they can get an episode on it.
2: So. That's great. Scott, do you have some picks? Absolutely. All right, so the... Uh, It was, um, I I watched an interview by a guy named Byron Cook, who's the director of Automated Reasoning Group at Amazon. And what the Automated Reasoning Group does is kind of, um, they build mathematical proofs that basically help you automate um, security checking or configuration checking. And that's, it. a lot of the, the, basis of a lot, lot of the tools like Amazon Inspector, Amazon, uh, AWS Config, AWS Compliance, Macy, Guard Duty Shield. Um, these are all, a lot, all of these services, I believe, have some of this technology in there where um, there's a lot of ways that you could misconfigure um, SSL setups or you could, the way you, you improperly encrypt things. And so he just, a lot of this is just kind of like the how the uh, cheese is made, so to speak. And so I've got a video link that I'll, I'll link to, and then, um, I'll link onto the AWS website where they talk about provable security. Um, and I just think it's a really fascinating way. And it's not, it's funny because it's, this isn't even so much like, um, Uh, it's not AI or machine learning necessarily. It is literally like the application of like mathematical proofs against configuration and stuff. And it's really kind of a fascinating uh, way that they do this stuff. So that's, that's my one and only pick this week.
0: Nice. Uh, I'm going to jump in here with a few picks. Uh, One of my picks is something that you probably all take for granted. That's air conditioning. Um, The air conditioning went out in the upper floor. We we have two units, but, uh, the top floor, which is where my office is in my house um, on Saturday, and it is now Wednesday. So uh, I, I am a puddle <laughs> in my office. Um, so, yeah, so uh, take a minute and uh, take take a deep breath of the air-conditioned air that you're sitting in and uh, realize how lucky we are to live in an age where we have it. Um, another pick that I have is, uh, and it was mentioned during this um, episode, is I'm going to be at OzCon. Uh, coming up in a few weeks. Um, I met Priyanka at um, Velocity Conference and uh, I'm going to be at OzCon. I'm also going to be at Chain React, which is the week before in Portland as well. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to inter- uh, interacting with some folks. So if you're there, um, go ping me on Instagram or Twitter. Um, Twitter, I'm uh, at CMAXW and Instagram, I'm Charles Maxwood. And let me know what you're doing. Let me know what you're looking into there because I'm I'm excited to uh, interact with some people, but yeah, OzCon looks really, really terrific. And then um, I've also been listening to the Expanse book series. Um, I watched the TV series first. It's on Amazon Prime. Uh, you can just watch it. Um, the first two seasons were put together by Sci Fi, and then I think they were going to cancel it or something, and Amazon picked it up and made the third season. And they've done a really, really good job on it. Um, but yeah, once you get past the second or third maybe the fourth I think it was the third book is as far as they've gotten with the um with the movies or the the tv shows and they've done an excellent job I've really really been uh gratified by the way that they've done that so uh, I'm going to pick those uh Priyanka do you have some things you want to shout out about for us
3: Yes, absolutely. Uh, I have a bunch. I collected them as you guys were talking. <laughs> um, so I'll go through them really quickly. Um, the first thing is uh, the Web ID in GitLab, I really like it because uh, as someone who truly believes in terminal and sublime, <laughs> I used to think Web IDs suck. but uh, over time when I'm making small changes and quickly want to do stuff, this has been really handy tool and I highly recommend it to anyone who can use it. That's one. The second thing I would like to recommend is um, if anyone is starting a business or thinking of starting a business in this world of in adjacent to or related to cloud computing, I think it can be really challenging, especially because the hyper clouds, as we call them with Amazon, Google, and Azure, it can be difficult to differentiate and find your value prop that isn't immediately swallowed by the clouds or the minute they decide to add a feature. And uh, Sid, our CEO at GitLab gave a talk at Open Source Leadership Summit called um, Commercial Open Source Models in the Age of HyperClouds, how to uh, GitLab bets on buyer-based open core. This talk is really useful in my mind for anyone who's starting a business in this field. Uh, Sid really talks from first principles and uh, I think it's valuable for folks. So I've shared that. Then the other thing I would like to share is how, so I got into uh, infrastructure and distributed systems by way of observability. I used to just do web development before. Um, and there was a paper I read that was really useful for me to sort of build a mental model. And that was the Dapper paper by Google. Uh, it speaks to the distributed tracing methodology they used to use at Google. I think now they use something called census. Um, but. I think it's a very easy to read paper. It really gives you the basics of tracing, observability, and just how to think about complex systems at scale. So I highly recommend it, and I have posted the link to that as well. Oh, and one last, sorry. My one last pick is remote work in general. I think remote work rocks, and um, every every company should try it. And, and the key thing is that they should Pick one, like go all remote or don't go remote at all because half, half doing it is bad for both kinds of employees. And so there's a list of resources that I have here, which I'm going to share, which people can look at if they're considering it.
0: All right. One other question that I would like to sh- have you share is uh, if people liked what they heard and they're thinking, oh, well, I'd like more of her insights, uh, where do they go to find you online?
3: Sure. I am overly active on Twitter. (laughs) And uh, my handle is almost my name, but not quite. It is Pritianka and I'm going to type it here. It's P-R-I-T-I-A-N-K-A. Please find me there. I am very engaged over there and I have open direct messages and people can reach out to me.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks for coming and uh, sharing with us.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I had a really good time.
2: Yeah. Thank you. It's great.
0: All right, folks, we're going to wrap this one up. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit cachefly.com to learn more.